Yes, hello everyone, and are you ready to ride? This is the Number But the Brave podcast. Of course, I'm Hal Schwartz, and I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Last time we were in the same room together, Mr. Springsteen was also in that same room. We were at the at the Paramount Theater for for Light of Day a couple weeks ago. Yeah, nothing gets the blood flowing as much as a Bruce appearance in Asbury Park. Yeah, we uh, it was pretty touch and go on whether he was actually going to be there or not. He uh, the night before he was playing in Florida at a fundraiser for the U.S. Equestrian Team. So uh, I guess he uh, he flew back just for the just for Bob. Yeah, no, really touching. I think you know he flew in the bad weather. He was down in Florida, as you said, and just really a great thing that he did to come back and support the foundation and support Bob. It, really wonderful, especially since he hadn't been he hadn't played there in what five years, right? Yeah, at, the last one was in 2015. Right, yes, twenty not 2016. He was in Pittsburgh that night. That's true. But, uh, but yeah, so it's been five years since he, he last played, and I got to say, it was fun to be there, just to state the obvious. It really was, and for me, it was the first time I was seeing him with an electric guitar in his hand since I left Australia three years ago. And I got to say, when he first came out on stage with Jesse Mallon, his voice did not sound great to me. He sounded a little bit rough, but as the night went on, he got better, I think, with every song. Uh, see, I, I couldn't really tell with the voice at first, but it was certainly that hat that, that threw me. I mean, he had it pulled down so far over his eyes that I just co- honestly couldn't tell if he was engaged or wanted to be somewhere else. Yeah, that um, hat was not photographer-friendly, I'll tell you that. It was pulled down pretty much all the way to his nose. Well, it it wasn't just photographer unfriendly, but just people. It was hard to get a read on on his face and what and what his what his eyes were saying, in addition to what he was singing. Um, He he was definitely moving very stiff, though, moving very stiffly. You know, it'll be Uh, interesting to see because, of course, he hasn't used his voice in that capacity much in the last three years. You know, I know you and I have talked about this privately. Roger Daltrey, when the Who is not touring. He does a solo tour, sometimes playing tiny places just for the purpose of saving his voice. He actually dubs the tour, use it or lose it, because he feels like if he stops singing when he needs it for the Who tour, it's not going to be there for him to call on. Now, I think as Bruce gets back into it and hopefully and he fronts the band and they rehearse properly and all that, I think his voice will be there. But it's got to be getting more difficult as you get older, as Daltrey has indicated. Yeah, I uh, and I hope Bruce's voice isn't too far gone for to to even to even consider that option. Um, and certainly, I don't think it is. Okay, well, and certainly every tour it seems to take them a little bit longer to really warm up. And I'm not just talking about you know the first couple rehearsals. I'm talking like the first couple weeks of shows can be a little bit uh, can be a little rough sometimes. And uh, you know, the older you get, the harder it is to warm up. Well, the other night, though, I thought with every successive song, he got better. Now, after he played with Jesse Mallon, he came out with Willie Nile and played one guitar. That was mainly a guitar spot, and he was awesome on that. And then when the set with Groshecki started, I thought, especially by the end, when they did Pink Cadillac and Save and Up, those were tremendous. Oh, definitely. And I mean, my highlight was Light of Day, actually, believe it or not, when he really went to town on the guitar during, during the intro to the song. It was it was like it was E Street again. Yeah, he seemed to get a spark back. You know, I'm sure he's got to be on stage. He's it's the juices get flowing. And obviously the crowd was incredibly enthusiastic. 
So it, that it must make him happy. And he seemed very happy at the end. The Thunder Road was also beautiful. It was beautiful, especially with everybody singing along in the in, in the theater. It's, it's that's always a very powerful moment at these shows. It's really nice to have a current Bruce performance for us to have discussed. And now let's turn to our topic for the evening, which is the Tunnel of Love Express Tour. When we left off in the last episode, Tunnel of Love had come out. And then later in 1987, Bruce did a couple of performances that we discussed. And as the year dawned, there still hadn't been a tour announcement. But lo and behold, it happened and a tour was announced and it would begin on February 25th, 1988 in Worcester, Massachusetts. Right. And uh, in 88, he was back to playing indoor arenas after playing all those football stadiums in 1985. And uh, at least in terms of tickets, the hysteria was back with the vengeance. The whole tour was just an incredibly difficult ticket. Worcester, in particular, I was lucky enough to get tickets for the first two shows. It was some somewhat miraculous. But I think also what was going on was that Bruce really wanted to downsize from where he had left off in 85 with all that hysteria. So he was playing smaller buildings. Of course, the record was a much different, more reflective album than Born in the USA, as we talked about in the last episode. And also, as he started rehearsing for the tour, he decided that with the band they were going to change things up, which included changing their positions on stage from their longstanding spots that they had been in from the start right and it's funny that you say downsize because he didn't downsize the band he actually increased the size of the of the on at least a number of people on stage bringing along the the tunnel of love horns aka labama and his hubcaps and it's also funny that you you say downsize because there was no downsize in the in the hysteria he may have he may have wanted to do that but it wasn't working it didn't work. The uh, media still went nuts, as well as as well as the fans. And as you were saying, he, Bruce was uh, he wanted to do something different. He so he uh, he rearranged the people on the stage, and I kind of consider that the the first step in the or the first part of the Bruce of the Born USA hangover. He was really he was trying to uh, deconstruct himself, as you said. And one of the early steps he he took was to change where people stood on stage, and I'm not really sure it worked. Well, remember, as we talked about in the last episode, at one point he was even considering taking this out as a solo project. So he was indecisive on that point. And then when he did convene the band, it just looked like that he it seems like he felt let's do something radically different here. Now, I don't know if actually having Clarence stand on a different side than he had previously <laughs> stood on before really is that radical. But I do think that there is a certain mental aspect, especially for the fans who had been used to looking at the band in a certain perspective. And it was a little disorienting seeing it for the first time where Clarence was in a different spot than he had stood for the previous 13 years. Well, the Tunnel of Love Express Tour was was my first tour, so I didn't have any expectations about where the band stood or what side of the stage anybody was on or whether there were horns or not. So I was just I was just uh, happy to be there, and I would love to to hear from people who saw a bunch of shows prior to '88 to see what to see how their reactions were at the time. It was part of a package. Obviously, just moving people around on stage when they were playing the same songs they were playing the same song. So if Clarence was standing in a different position, I don't know how much that changes a song. But one of the things that I also think Bruce tried to do, of course, with the narrative of the show, as we're about to discuss, I think, in great detail, he went in a totally different direction than he'd been on the Born in the USA tour. And he went in a direction that I think was really somewhat unusual for a rock tour. 
Right. He he went out. He as he said in some interviews, and as he said when introducing Born to Run on the tour, he wanted to come out and sing a new song. That's his job, and he did. There was no more Badlands, no more Thunder Road, Promised Land. Uh, born even Born to Run was was stripped down acoustic. So he came out and he really dropped a lot of the corners cornerstones of the set that he that had been you know fan favorites going back you know back to 75 74 yeah i think as you can say it I, he definitely was trying to deconstruct the myth that had been established over the previous classic period of 1975 to 85 and i think as we mentioned once before the live album sort of served as a final punctuation to that and now he was entering a new phase and i think he wanted to try and do something radically different now in the states i think it worked where as the tour continues and we get to europe uh, it obviously things start to loosen up a bit and it goes more towards the direction he had previously been in but in the united states this was really a unique show that he did. It really was. I think there were only, I'm looking at the set list from opening night right now, and I can only see one, two, three, four, five, six, like eight songs. So a third of the show returned from the previous tour. So you had two thirds of the show basically being totally new. And I, I would have if if I had seen a bunch of shows in eighty four eighty five I would have absolutely loved this this cut this cut this total revamping revamping of the set list. I mean, I've actually been kind of waiting for him to do it here in the reunion era, but I don't think that's going to happen now. As he was putting together the show, we even have some insight into the rehearsals, which were done at Fort Monmouth, and there he really. He had a selection of songs that wound up not getting played that would have even made it more of a radical shift from the Born in the USA tour. There there were songs in there he he was doing, he was rehearsing at least, outtakes and, and rarities. And he also did Valentine's Day, which of course was never played on the tour. And we don't know what the tour would have looked like. Obviously, he distilled it down to the set that he did on opening night and then would continue to do mostly for most of the U.S. leg. But there was quite a number of interesting things that he was even thinking about playing that I think would have been pretty unthinkable even three or four years earlier. Absolutely. I'm looking at that rehearsal set list right now, the one that you're referring to from January 28th, 88. And it looks like the first about nine songs that we that are on that tape basically would have made up I, the second set. It would have t- started with Tougher, and then he had You Can Look, and She's the One, which obviously he... He reversed as before the tour started. I'm, I'm on fire, one step up, Candy's Room. And then you had a really interesting combo of Valentine's Day and When You're Alone, which, I and I the way I remember the tape sounding, the Valentine's Day featured a lot of horn work in, that, in the rolling melancholy sound of the song. And it would have been very similar to the racing in the street from, from, the, from 84, 85. That were where it closed the it closed the main set or the second set rather in kind of a very melancholy tone, but of course in this time it's more of a confident sound. Uh, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. I mean, we'll never know how that would have sounded had he actually played at played it. And of course, in playing in arenas, that may have been an maybe a step too far in terms of challenging the audience it it, and i was there and i did see shows in 85 as we've discussed previously 
you know, I don't know how much the audience would have been open to that. I think it was it even threw people for a loop in 1988 when he didn't do the Thunder Road, Prove It All Night, Badlands, Promised Land. It was it, it really was a very radical shift as we arrived in Worcester and the show was unveiled. To Bruce's full credit, he stuck with it with the set for the most part. Yeah, and he he didn't give in to uh, you know fans talking during slow songs. And I think at that point, people for the most part, still really respected what he was doing on stage. You don't, I mean, not that people don't now, but. No, but audiences were different then. I mean, we have to recognize that. First of all, he was the biggest artist in the world. He did have people paid attention in a way. I just don't think that they pay attention now. And there were no cell phones. It was just, it was a different time. I mean, you can't even compare it. Obviously, of course, the no cell phones is just a huge, huge difference. <laughs> uh, as, yes. As we know from the recent light of day, not look, I, t- I t- took pictures, too. And you know, I got at least one video of Bruce doing one guitar, which people really liked. It's on my Instagram page if anyone wants to see it. But, you know, every person holding up a cell phone, it, it is at times a bit much. But it's the times we live in. And you, you in a way, you sound sort of grumpy. But fortunately, in 1988, that didn't exist. No, he really he still held the audience in the palm of his hand at that point. And he could have done he could have done anything. And I think that it would have it, it would have worked. I would have loved to have seen that that Valentine's Day when you're alone combo to to end the to end the second set. I think it would have been really, really powerful. Oh, I think you're totally right. But I do think that where he wound up in the set was still a pretty radical. It was not only a radical change from 1985, but I think it was a pretty radical step for the audience, as I think we mentioned earlier. And people did go with it. Yes, there was grumbling about no promised land, no bad lands and those songs. But I do think that he really did put together something that was very compelling. And the audience recognized that. Right. And I think, as we were saying, the audience was more was more receptive to something unusual at that time. And he came out and he he did be true, which was. You know, the B-side from from eight eight years earlier, you had Roulette, which was basically released the same day as the tour started. Uh, I'm a Coward, uh, Part Man, Part Monkey, unreleased, Light of Day, unreleased. So he really was coming out and he, he was challenging the audience and they, they responded in a positive way. And I think that really helped the show progress. Well, and let's talk about opening night because there were some things in opening night. And, you know, I'm going to get to the Audrey story, which did not survive very long. And perhaps he did read that in those sections, the audience was a little overly restless. Although artistically, the Audrey story, which did go on for quite a while, that was the intro to spare parts. Uh, it's hard to see that he would have done a, a, what was how long was that? About 15 minutes. It seemed like. Yeah, it was pretty long. It so, was pretty long. But let's let's start at the beginning. I think we let's start at the beginning of the show. Let's go back to opening night, February twenty fifth, nineteen eighty eight, Worcester, Massachusetts. It was, a, Massachusetts, the it was a Thursday, I believe. Yeah. I was there, and when lucky that, bastard. Oh my god! It, that was the first time I ever traveled to a show. Somehow, I convinced my parents that I was going to see a friend who was at Boston University, and I went and I saw the first two shows, and it was it was crazy because you know, and there had been discussion that there it, the show might be a radical departure. I know at the time the Backstreet Hotline still existed. I remember calling in and I 
they didn't want to give away any spoilers, but I remember that they, they said, I think it was that Adam raised a cane had been rehearsed, which of course had not been played in a long time. There was just so much anticipation. The way the show opened, it was obviously so different. It was very theatrical. I mean, it, it actually was sort of a precursor to a Broadway play because you actually had a set on stage with the ticket booth and Terry McGovern dressed up as a barker and handing out tickets to each band member. It was very well constructed. And as the show opened with and Bruce came out, what did he say? Uh, I forget ready. what he said the first night. Are you ready for a date or ready, ready for, for a ride? Date? Ready for one of the one of the two. Yeah. For an opening night, it was a magnificent performance, even yeah. with even with the places where definitely he I think he recognized them, that there were some rough portions. But the show itself was extremely well put together in a manner that I don't know, not to criticize the opening nights and recent tours, but a lot of times he does not have this much of a show constructed on opening night. He did on the Wrecking Ball tour, but some of the other tours, not so much. Well, we have we have to go back and say that the ba several band members said at the time that they did more rehearsing for this tour than the previous than all the previous tours combined. And you're and you're right; they really did put put together a show. Uh, I mean, between the not only was there the the carnival ticket booth, but there was also the park bench and, and all that heaven will allow and. Some of the more theatrical elements, and certainly, and you can look in in and in Amma Coward. So they he really was putting on more of a choreographed show than he'd ever ever done. Yeah, in a way, as we're talking about it now, this definitely was a precursor to some of the things he's done in much later in his career. And he, I, I like the fact that he had a theatrical concept here. Now, it was certainly different in the sense that the shows were very similar, very very similar, and. Even on the stadium tour in 1985, where there wasn't as much setless change, there was there was change from night to night. This was a show. He he put together a show, and I remember walking out opening night after and was a little thrown myself. You know, I was very young, so at, at now thinking about it in a much more adult artistic sense, as much as I loved it, I was thrown. I was like, wow, that's uh, nobody I would have expected that. Certainly, I didn't. <laughs> but as we get back to the beginning of the show, I mean, the Tunnel of Love, Be True intro, I think it set the tone. Did it perhaps give a little insight into what was going on in his own life personally, perhaps? Just in those two songs? Well, I'm saying at the start, not much more in terms of the entire show, but I'm saying as the show kicked off, those two sh songs set the tone. And I do think that the Tunnel of Love, Be True combo, you know, probably, and Patty was featured very prominently on Be True. Oh, that's one other thing we need to mention here as we start to discuss the songs in detail. Patty's placement on stage, whereas you could say, well, moving one person from this side to the other side didn't matter that much. The one thing that was very, very noticeable was that Patty was in a much more prominent position on stage and a much bigger part of the show than we had seen on the Born in the USA tour. Well, you can first create, first chalk that up just the fact that she she was on the album Tunnel of Love way more than she had been on Born in the USA. In fact, she wasn't even on the USA album. So she was providing background vocals on a bunch of songs. And so it made sense for her for her to move up there. But uh, but yeah, but she became, you know, she, she became Bruce's onstage foil. She kind of replaced Clarence in that regard. And a lot of people were thrown by that at the time, I think. <laughs> at the time, yeah. A month and a half later, not so much. Yeah, but well, then, yes. 
as far as Worcester is concerned at this point, nobody knows anything. I, I we, we don't even know what was going on at that point, if Bruce and Patty had gotten together or anything like that. But certainly the audience doesn't know anything. So the show is unfolding in a manner. Uh, he comes out, he does Tunnel of Love, he does Be True. And then he goes into Adam Raise the Cane, which, as we know, is a very angry song about his father. And then, interestingly, he pairs it with Two Faces, which, as we were talking about in the last episode, when we were talking about the record, the the comparison between some of those songs and the anger on darkness. Well, I always saw Adam raised the cane kind of being the precursor or foreshadowing or even a bookend to walk like a man in this late in the second set. So you had the third song of the show being about his father. And then the th- third to last song of the main set also being about his father, but being more of a, uh, I don't know, softer, softer, certainly a softer sound uh, to the relationship and uh, more understanding. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. But uh, but yeah, two faces. That's he he introduced that at a couple of shows saying this is a song about waking up with a stranger in the house. So even then, that was that was probably more foreshadowing to his to his relationship with with his first wife than just about anything else here. I think so. And it was on the album as well. Obviously, now looking back, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight and we know what happened. But it pretty clearly, both on the record and in the show, he was providing hints of what was to come. Yes. And in terms of of the show's pacing, it, it really wasn't that much different than what he had been doing basically since at least Darkness, where you started off with three or four rockers and then you you slowed it down but instead of slowing it down with with a darkness or an independence day he went ahead and slowed it down with a very introspective song and then that was followed of course as you were pointing out with the park bench story of all that heaven will allow yes and that may have been uh, it was a clarence it was a clarence spotlight song if only because he started that little little piece if you can call it a piece with uh, about a minute and a half of, of just soloing and before uh, before Bruce comes out and talks to the crowd for the first time. Now, if we talk about the, the narrative arc as a whole, starting with Tunnel of Love and Be True, and as you pointed out, as we get to the end of the second set, Walk Like a Man and then Dancing in the Dark and finally Light of Day, there is a narrative arc that he's forming here that I think that was quite effective. And Quite tellingly, as we know, the tagline for the tour was, this is not a dark ride. So, of course, the show starts entering the tunnel, riding on down into the tunnel of love. And what do you get to at the end of the main set? You emerge into the light of day. So I thought that that was a really cool thing that he did there. And it sort of followed that line throughout the entire main set. And I think all that heaven will allow is a turning point within the main set because it changes from the anger of Adam raised the cane and the darkness that's contained in two faces. And it, with all that heaven will allow both with the story and with the song, it, it's bringing a little bit more lightness into the show. Oh, right. Absolutely. That's like the, the euphoria that we talked about on the album. Yeah. And it was what, what I always found interesting about that little park bench piece is that he never let Clarence speak. You know, he was talking to Clarence about his about his little kid, and then he never lets Clarence actually talk into the mic. <laughs> I thought that was kind of kind of cheesy, I guess. But um, only you know. Bruce talks at a Bruce show. Sorry, Flynn. Uh, that's I, I guess I get that now. But still, I thought that was interesting. I had that revelation not too long ago. Um, but you can also really you can track the course of 
over the course of the tour, you kind of see how his he's talking about how we used to go out and play and jam all night during the uh, we talked about it during this intro. He uh, f- when he started the tour, it was oh I gotta be in bed by eleven and then I lights out eleven thirty, and then by the end of the tour, by the end of well by the time we get to the garden anyway, it's like let's go out tonight, let's check, let's stay out late tonight, let's do it. So there was definitely a change there. Now that was followed by Seeds and then Roulette. Now those were two songs I think that as they followed, if we say that all that heaven will allow is the euphoric meeting the new relationship and everything that they talked about on the park bench. As we know, Seeds, the family is on the move because of the recession. And then Roulette, of course, the family's on the move because of a nuclear meltdown. Right. Well, I always thought that the All That Heaven Will Allow into Seeds was very akin to the the segue on the album from Heaven into Spare Parts. It's kind of like a little little gut check there where it's back. You, know, you, you snap out of the the romantic side and bam, the real world is right there waiting for you as as it always is. There's certainly no euphoria in seeds or roulette for that matter. No, not at all. Not at all. But as you pointed out, the, the narrative works. I think roulette comes out of seeds almost perfectly. Oh yeah. Just as an aside outside the narrative. I mean, when roulette was played, especially that first night, uh, that was it, it, that was a moment. I mean, the the idea that Roulette had been released, which it had been the B side on One Step Up, and was now being played live. It was just it it seems so impossible that that would happen, and yet here it was. So and and Roulette to this day, although he doesn't another song he doesn't play enough, but Roulette yeah. <laughs> is so great live and it was great on this tour Uh, the band played great on this tour that that's one thing we should say here talking about the first show and every show after the band really played great they were well rehearsed the show was tight as we mentioned and and this was just really good stuff well if we're going to point out how great the band was playing at this point i'm going to point out how much bruce's guitar playing was came to the forefront after it had basically been an afterthought on the on the previous two tours he came out. He did the the Adam Razor Kane intro f- that was on the on the live set that was used back on the on the Darkness tour, and then he had Seeds and Roulette back to back. Which, I mean, that's a hell of a guitar a t- guitar attack there. And then then you go in the cover me, and yeah. he is all over that with with the guitar, and it doesn't stop there. I mean, later in the first set with, with spare parts in USA, and certainly she's the one in the light of day in the second set. So. His guitar playing really took a step up, and I don't know if, if it, how intentional that was or what he was trying to do, but it was, uh, it was something to see. Yeah, I agree with you. They really came out on this tour, and they were in attack mode. I mean, it was really intense, and that continued, as you noted, after Roulette into Cover Me, which then segued into Brilliant Disguise. That was a really great song pairing on that tour. And, of course, he it was so great he would use it again on the following tour. <laughs> True. Well, it worked really well. I, I don't, t- don't totally see the, the combination or the thematic segue there, but it certainly worked perfectly musically. Well, I think he linked it thematically by using the Give Me Shelter lines at a lot of the performances from the Stones. That, to me, that was a very key choice that he made and clearly intentional because we know Bruce doesn't do the things by accident. No, no. And that that's actually was one of the highlights for me of that song. It's just just a kiss away, just a kiss away at, at the outro of Cover Me. I thought that just added such an excellent level 
to this to the song. And then at the brilliant disguise, he went into spare parts. Now on this first night, and this is what I was talking about earlier. He did a story that really was very lengthy and in some ways compelling and in other ways that you would find it hard to believe that a rock and roll performer stood on a stage in an arena and told a story of that length. But basically it was about this woman, Audrey, who he had seen as a kid who was a battered housewife and he felt a little embarrassed over the actions he took as a kid, even though he was of course innocent and he had no control over the situation. Right. And and in, in that story that he told, or at least that opening night, it was one of the first times he had talked about how his his habit to drive back into his old neighborhoods and just to drive around late at night. But uh, it's interesting because in that version of the story, he he goes back to his house and to his family. And but he still continued to do that later on. Oh, yes. I think there's a lot of themes that actually come up for him in this show that do repeat later on in his career, as we know, both in the book, of course, and on Broadway, and then a little bit as we've discussed in Western Stars. Yes, yes, and that's definitely a, a big a big part of it right there. Of course, Spare Parts was followed by both War and Born in the USA. Those two songs together, in terms of crowd response, were definitely the crowd-pleasing section of the evening. The response to those songs every night was just monstrous. It really was. Uh, I mean, War had been a, it was a top, was it top 10 or top 15 hit just yeah. a year, just a year and a half prior to this. So it was still riding high on people's minds. And then, of course, the most Bruce, the most iconic Bruce song, at least of the decade, maybe maybe in his whole career to end the main set, never, uh, never failed to disappoint. And you, and on every recording, whether it's the official, an official recording or, or a crowdsourced one, you can always hear the um, the crowd just goes freaking crazy for that one. Oh, yeah, it was. And in terms of the narrative, of course, those two songs are very linked together. And thinking of what they had followed, it was really sending the audience out into intermission in a much darker place than I think he had done on previous tours. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially the way he took the Born USA guitar solo at the end of the song. He just took that one to heights that he never, ever reached uh, on the previous tour. And there was something that felt so angry in that solo and the power of it. It really was something. And when that song smashed to a close and they they took the bows, I mean, people, I think, uh, and I remember this the first night, I know I was, there, there was, people were just sort of like stunned. I mean, it had been like uh, 90 minutes of just such intensity hmm. that uh, even, you know, if you think back to the Born USA tour and some of the first sets there were really great, but there, I think there was an intensity to this first set that was just really, really deep. And in fact, he did an interview in 1988 where he had mentioned, I think it was in, in one of the Chicago papers, that he was going to throw Darlington County into the first set midway through to lighten things up, and then he decided to take it back out. Hmm. Well, I'm glad he did, because I like the way that the, the way the first set flowed with that intensity. I think without that intensity, even if... Even in the the brief levity of in the intro to All That Heaven Will Allow, he just keeps coming right back at you. And that's what made that, that tour or this show so special. Well, one of the things that really strikes me now as we're talking about it and looking back at the first set, there's not a lot of places to hide in that set of music. What do you mean? 
Well, the the songs, I mean, the characters are, each and every one of them, except for maybe All That Heaven Will Allow, are involved in things that are pretty bleak. Uh, You know, if you think whether it's Adam Raised the Cane and the battle between father and son and two faces, the guy struggling with the second person inside him, or of course, Seeds or Roulette. I mean, interestingly, those songs are then uh, followed by Cover Me, as we said. That is really a relationship song, but really... Cover me, of course, also means something else. You know, if we think about a war connotation to it, it seems like that character was in need of cover at that point. Right. It, well, it's interesting to note that on a he's touring behind an album that's about relation, like one to one intimate relationships, and then you, you but then you have songs where it's seeds and roulette and and where it's people who are fighting outside forces, you know, fighting the recession or fighting a, a nuclear meltdown. And, and, of course, ending with war and born in the USA, they're fighting against international and, and national forces against them. And, and that's, what, that's what I was saying. I mean, that was a conclusion to the set. I mean, it, both in terms of intensity and in terms of what he was saying. It was like when you went out in the hallway afterwards, it, there was there you hadn't yet had the release now he gives you the release later in the show as we're going to get to but Several that times. was just <laughs> that was just really it was relentless yeah and i and i i really like it i to me there's something about that set i guess it's that driving intensity that just that doesn't give up uh throughout the entire duration that just makes it as i said makes it special to me even if even if uh the set list didn't change at all or very much throughout the tour. I can, I can still listen to just about any, any of those, any of those shows and get something out of it. If he did a show like this today, now granted people would be thrown for a loop if he did the same show night after night. But if he did a show like this today in a narrative sense, it would blow people's minds. Well, I've, as I said earlier, I would love to see him do a show at this point in his career where he drops a lot of the, of the old war horses. And yeah, that, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we agree on that. Yeah, it's not going to happen now, but, but certainly the, to hear the, the fact that he, he went with a set list that was so different is what made me, is what made me think that, you know, it, it's sure it didn't change night to night, but it was a hell of a lot different than it was three years ago. Now, when he comes out and let's talk about the second set, which of course starts with tougher than the rest here, as you were saying in the first set, there were a lot of external things going on, war and nuclear meltdowns and, and recessions here in the second set, it really does turn to the more personal. Oh, absolutely. Good point. Good point on that one. You start off with tougher and, you know, he comes out and it's, I think it's as Rolling Stone or somebody pointed out at the time, it was the first time in his career that the second set did not start with an outright rocker. It was, it was interesting because, and especially being there that first night, because you always would expect the hungry heart of the Cadillac ranch or the Sherry darling or whatever. And it really, yeah. And it really did set a tone and it, this is really where, and if it was the case on the record, I think it's also here in the second set, his heart is on his sleeve here. Mm. Yes, it is. That's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way specifically, but yeah, he came out, he was talking to the audience. I am tougher than the rest. You know, and then that's followed by She's the One, and then You Can Look. I mean, those are all songs that are, 
you know, I think very thematically linked and he paired them very effectively. And he, he this was I don't know who he was singing to at, at this point. Was it was it about Julianne? Was he just going on in terms of his own mindset and the struggles he had been experiencing, obviously, as an as a new husband? As we know, the marriage didn't work out. Was it in part singing to Patty. I mean, we're never going to know these things. Well, unless he talks about it. <laughs> True. And but, he's not going to talk about that. <laughs> no, but these are a set of songs and, and in these songs also, and this is where, especially as the shows went on, where people did start to say, is there something going on there? Because there was a smoldering intensity between him and Patty on tougher than the rest. And some of these other songs that, uh, especially a lot of the females in the audience started to take notice of. Yeah, they definitely picked up on that uh, a lot quicker than their male counterparts. But, you know, if even just looking at the, uh, well, just go look at the Tougher Than the Rest video that he released on the video anthology, or I guess it was released in other formats prior to that. But there was that intensity between the two of them that you cannot deny at all. And no. oh, I'm sorry. And, yeah. And, if you were trying to trying to trying to say that they were just acting at that point, I think you'd be uh, you'd be left off the walk. Well, there was certainly a point where they weren't acting. I mean, that we know for sure. <laughs> I we on on opening night, it's it's debatable. Who knows what was going on? But we know as the, as a, a month or two later, they're not acting. No, no. But oh, something else I want to point out, at least an observation that I had about about the show or about this tour in general, and specifically these first three songs of the second set, is that he seemed to have like an extra edge to him that I don't remember him having since maybe darkness. Um, I don't know if it's if it was arrogance or like a more of a bravado, a more of a, you know, he's digging his own sexuality or something. Uh, but he had an edge there. And it, it was... It was that presence on stage was much different than what he had before. Oh, for sure. And they had on, you can look, they brought in the, the dancing girls. And of course the horns played a role there with the backup singing. I think there was just, there was a romance sort of to it all. And of course, then those songs are followed by I'm a coward where, I mean, he's making a declaration there as well. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's when he came out and he said, I have sinned. And I and I remember hearing that in the summer of late in the summer of '88, going, "What the hell is he saying? He's actually confessing to this, to this being his his romance with Patty." I was I was blown away by it. I remember opening night when that started. It wasn't a Bruce song, certainly unlike most of the covers he had done previously, and it was it was pretty mind blowing. Like I remember that being one of the high points of the show, and there was something about it, like. Again, I was young then. I, you you don't think about these things when you're when you're a college student. You're not sitting there going, "Oh, you know what what's what's going on romantically here? Is he satisfied in life?" You know, those things would never enter into the mind of a of an eighteen year old. No, but, not at all. You know, now looking back at it as an adult, you know, obviously he was going through something pretty profound. Uh, yeah. And well, I mean, and he was doing it in a very lighthearted way, at, le at least in this in this particular song. Oh, yeah, that was so fun. And when he told uh, what was it, Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson or maybe both of them? The oh, one could kiss his ass and the other can kiss his ass twice. Both cheeks. That got yeah, that got quite the reaction from the crowd that because that was when uh, that whole televangelist thing was had really taken off. And he had you had uh 
what was the guy's name? Mary Baker, Jim Baker. Yeah. He had he had just been, you know, outed as and his not, wife Tammy Faye. Right. And he had just been outed as, you know, fooling around with his secretary. So he had sinned. So Bruce was kind of mocking him in a way. Um and yeah, that was that was a fun way of expressing it. And of course, you know, two songs later, it was the not so fun way of expressing that. Oh yeah, I think you're right about one step up. And before you even get to one step up, there's more romance in in the i'm on fire which i think was a natural progression out of i'm a coward and the three songs that had become that had come previously i'm on fire on this tour especially as it went on i think it became a very sort of symbolic song and his performance felt much more i don't know what the right word is i don't want to use the word erotic because that's (laughs) of course not the right one but there was a a smoldering to his performance on i'm on fire on this tour that i don't think was really there in 84 85 no i mean in 84 85 he kind of made it about if something didn't change he was just gonna uh, uh, and then the song starts whereas on this time it just he goes straight into the song and it really just he let he he lets it smolder. I think that is a, a good way of putting it, especially at the end of the song when uh, when he kind of le- when he would lead the audience in extra and 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 singing along to the oh 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 I'm on fire part. Yeah, so. well that can't and that I don't know that that was there as much in the opening shows, but it definitely was there as the year went on. Right. Well, I also remember him kind of shaking his butt a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, you know, not shaking his butt like like booty shaking, but certainly doing it in a trying to be as sexy as he could at the time. Now, uh, continuing on after one step up, he did a song that was unreleased at the time, part man, part monkey, which was about evolution. And I that one really I, I will say this. And as I, I think, you know, the audience doesn't know. I've never been the hugest fan of part man, part monkey. I did think the <laughs> versions on the Devils and Dust tour were effective. But this first night here in Worcester, when he broke out part man, part monkey, I, it really threw me for a loop. I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> I, I remember, you know, again, I was young, but I was like, what the hell is this? Well, I, I, can, I can see that. And I, I honestly don't remember my reaction uh, when I when I first saw that song about a week later. So um, but to me, I, I, I enjoyed it. It had a different sound. It had a different feel. And then certainly the uh the was it the love is strange from ian something in sylvia ian and sylvia am i yeah the you know how do you call your lover boy with between him and patty you know that certainly was was pretty that was different too it was and again you know the manner in which he said honey call your lover boy i mean like it, it brought her into the show in a fashion that i think nobody would have conceived of before this tour started <laughs> no not not at all not at all. And I think uh, when, when Karen Rose was writing her review about uh, the, the 52388 archive release, she was trying to find why he would include that. And I think it really just kind of came down to, well, it was that song was featured heavily in the Dirty Dancing film, which had been which was very popular the previous fall. So I think he was just inspired by Dirty Dancing for once. 
I don't know if they have it. And of course, they've released a number of tunnel shows from the States already. This opening night to me would be such an interesting release just because of some of the things that we're talking about. And uh, again, I mean, as we get the next song, Walk Like a Man. Now, Walk Like a Man this night had a keyboard intro, which was really gorgeous. Again, absolutely, sort of absolutely gorgeous. Oh, my one God. One of those things that, you know, does it work for an audience in an arena? Is that why he dropped it? Now, they only did this uh, keyboard intro before Walk like a man this first night in in Worcester and the third night and after that it was dropped entirely so there was something very gorgeous about it and walk like a man itself is a song that works so well on this tour now we're going to both put in the plug here uh <laughs> totally off the cuff the, walk like a man has not been on any of the tunnel of love archive releases yet it really needs to be on the next one i think we both agree on that Oh, 100%. I would even, to me, there are only two songs from the Tunnel of Love tour that have not been included on one of the archive releases that desperately need it. And Walk Like a Man is one, and Across the Borderline is the other. Well, I would put in a plug for a third, Crying. Okay. All right. That's possibility, too. But but it's it's almost like if the next archive release from that tour does not include either of those two songs, and considering that across the borderline and replace walk like a man in the set later on in los angeles and then again in may and new york and i think a couple other places it's don't even bother (laughs) yeah a walk like a man was perhaps the most important song of the set here i mean you referenced it in terms of paying off the songs that had come earlier in the first set walk like a man and of course it's a very important song on the record too as we discussed in the last episode there was it just it it works so well live and it's one of those songs i mean you could just see it was very important to him and it was very important in the way it was placed in this set and quite frankly it's a little surprising it was it's never been played again except for the devils and dust tour well maybe not considering that it's such it's so personal that well that's true i mean we we could go through through that line of thinking but yeah i I think it was on what the set list for Mohegan Sun that last night in 2014. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that's that's one I really I really miss. And and the whole end of the set here, I mean, the dancing in the dark, which was placed, I mean, in a very interesting fashion. And then the story he told at the end of Dancing in the Dark, instead of just calling the girl up with the I'm searching, I'm searching for my baby, like he's looking for something, you know, that paid off on the set as a whole as well, because I do think that the set itself was really about a man, you know, searching for for not only love, but to find his place in the world. You, would you agree with that? Interesting. I, well, I, first off, I didn't really think of that as a story like he well, told before I, Spirit maybe story, is, maybe story is not the right word for it, but uh, sort of a, a separate little tag. Right. I, right that, that's right. He wants to reach out to someone who reminds him that he's a real human being. Yeah. And then I just want to say... Hey, baby, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it this time, but uh, well, I, well, I think the the that line that you note there, I want to reach out to someone who makes me feel like a human being. That that was the important line there. That yes, I can definitely see that. I hadn't really made that connection before now, but that's a very valid point. That, and you know, that's why I'm saying I think it's it's about a man trying to find his his place in the world. Here, he's the most successful rock star on the planet. He's selling out arenas, you know, and does he really not? feel like a human being that's a good question you would you would think that he would at that point and maybe he was just doing it for dramatic or or comedic comedic effect in some fashion 
Um, but you always work her- that in some fashion, and people are loving that. I do. I have to work it in there. Um, and then, yeah, he would bring the girl on stage or bring the woman on stage, and you know that was kind of that making that connection between the audience and and, and the performer. And you, you can definitely extrapolate that to being Brett's Bruce making a connection to the world or yeah. the world making a connection to him. So, um, so yeah, that's a very that's a very good point. I mean, at the time we you know it was just kind of sticky. It was like oh, dancing in the dark. He pulls some girl up, and but yeah, it's it represented more than just uh, someone dancing on the on stage with him. The next song was the concluding song of the main set, which was "Light of Day," which is, I, in a way, it's almost on the nose. It's like the tagline is, "This is not a dark ride." What does the set end with? "Light of Day," you know, emerging. <laughs> so. Very true. And, and you talked about the band basically attacking the music on some of these songs or, or just that kind of musical intensity that was, I, mean, I don't want to say violent, but certainly very aggressive. And I don't think there was a moment on the USA tour or any song that started on the USA tour that had the same ferociousness as the start of Light of Day on the Tunnel of Love tour. Well, and certainly if you look at the Garden archive release with the Born to be Wild, uh, there are not a lot of songs that have a more intensity that Bruce has probably played in his lifetime. No, not at all. But but I would I would argue that the Born to be Wild, while it certainly added a lot of intensity, the song itself had been pretty intense from the from the start, and yes. it seemed to be even more intense than it than it became in, in ninety nine two thousand. I mean, it was just boom. I, I it's hard to describe, but it was really like a like a freight train coming down the track very fast. Totally, and th- that brought the set to a close, and then we went into the encores. You know, and continuing the idea that he was going to do something radically different, he even said in introducing Born to Run the first night that it was his job to come out and tell the audience something different and to recontextualize it. And he did this version of Born to Run Acoustic. I had seen it at that big blue benefit at the Garden at the end of 87, like we discussed in the last episode. But still, it seemed like a bit of a surprising choice here with all the other drop war horses. Now he's taking his biggest song and it's putting it into a totally new version. So I think for the audience, it was unexpected. And then ironically, he forgets the words. If you want to say the biggest rock star on the planet comes out and does one of his most famous famous songs in a totally different arrangement, different low-key arrangement, then yeah, that, well, in that, at, that sense it's very unexpected. I'm actually looking at uh, the Bruce bass. It's actually the second night, the second night in which he ironically forgets. He t- tells the crowd that Born to Run is one of his favorite songs and then sings the first line and totally blanks on the rest of the lyrics. I believe he said, I've sang it so many times, I forget the damn words. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back to the recording of it, you got, I think that's that's what he said. It just was really different, and it was a continuation of what he had started with the show that he was going to really mix things up. Right. He wanted to, come, as you said, he wanted to come out and sing a new song. That's his job. As as for, for that's one of my favorite lines from from while well, introducing that song. I think that's from Mountain View as well as from a, a few others. Uh, but the way he set up the song about he, he had to put he put a guy and a girl into a car, and but he had to give them some place to go. And it was his song. It was he asked a lot of questions in the song when he wrote it when he was what twenty four, on the edge of his bed in Long Branch, New Jersey. Well, I think um, he's, he he did say something like, 
he put the kids in the car and now he had to really wonder where they were going. And that was really what this show was, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And they were searching for home. And I think there was some line at some point about, you know, home isn't out there, but it's, it's inside you somewhere. Looking back at it now, he was very ambitious with himself, with himself yeah. as a person trying to, I don't want to say convince himself that he was trying to find home at that point or he was ready to find home at that point. Because uh, certainly he was just beginning his a lot of his of his own personal journey into those kinds of issues. In all honesty, it's really hard to consider that he would ever put this kind of challenging emphasis on a show in an arena again. Yeah, I would love to see him try, but I don't think he's going to do it. <laughs> now, the encores of this show did give you the payoff. And for yeah. The audience that was waiting for a little bit of release, they got it. After Born to Run, you had... Very good versions with the horns of Hungry Heart and Glory Days. Yeah, that's when the party started. And, and, I th and I think he mentioned that, you know, when the lights go on for Hungry Heart and everybody's singing along, that's the connection. That's another another connection point where everybody is together, basically. And, uh, and I think that's where he was talking about on introducing save my love in 2014 about all those souls in one moment listening to the same thing and this and in this situation they were singing along to the same thing and it really brought something else brought another level to it totally and and i think that there's something here because he then brings it back down because the song that followed they well they left the stage after glory days and then they came back and he did can't help falling in love and he did it in an arrangement that was well, it was full band. It was full band, but also was there was there was a sweetness to it in a way that was it, to me it was a little bit different than certainly what he had done in '85, and I think different than what Elvis did with the song. Did did you hmm. feel that at all? Well, certainly different than what he did in in '85, as you said. Um, I would certainly think it was somewhat akin to what Elvis was doing, and but you're right, there was a sweetness to it that. Really? Yeah, I, I guess that would be unexpected at that point. In a way, it was sweetness, softness. I don't know which word you want to use more. Well, you can say we say tenderness, too. And he did love yeah. me tender a couple uh, a couple nights later. Yeah, that's true. And there was a te the tenderness is the perfect word. So there we stumbled <laughs> onto it. There was a tenderness to can't help falling in love that I, I think, again, had been something that he hadn't necessarily exhibited before this tour. No, and it worked, and it really it worked well here, especially you know opening this the second encore and then before exploding into Rosalita, and that was where the payoff came at the end for the audience, Rosalita, which of course ties in also another song about romance, looking for a lover, all that stuff, and then you get to the Detroit medley, and these versions of the Detroit medley were pretty damn good. Yes, I, I know a lot of people would say that the, the River Tour, the original River Tour, had the best Detroit medleys, but I would certainly argue strongly in, in favor of these Tunnel of Love Detroit medleys. Oh, the had, Sweet Soul Music and the Shake was, <laughs> that was really, it was really great. Yes, and, and I would certainly argue that the horns really brought a lot to it. I mean, they really, going along with that riff, and then they had fun with the Sweet Soul Music and, and Shake, as you said, so... No, I thought this Detroit medley may be my favorite. Well, I think it's hard to disagree with you on that. Well, we, we certainly end up agreeing on a lot of things. So That's true. Go. And 
So we spent an hour, I think, Flint, talking about this one show, Worcester 225.88. Maybe what we should do is let's stop here, leave this show standing on its own, and then we'll come back and do another part where we talk about the U.S. tour, the European tour, and also the amnesty tour that happened in 1988. What do you think? Well, that sounds good to me. I think, uh, you know, considering the very static set list of, of that year, uh, we've done a, I thought we've uh, really discussed the, uh, that set list, and we'll discuss all the changes as the tour evolved uh, next week. This was a very specific set list, and I think it bore this close examination. Certainly one of the more interesting things he's done in his career. I totally agree. <laughs> so we'll come back and we'll pick up the rest of the year next time. Yes, we will. So let's wrap up with a little bit of business as we normally do. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And as always, feel free to give us five stars. Western, Eastern, it doesn't matter. We just like the stars. <laughs> we do really like the stars. On the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean. Again, saying thank you for listening. And we'll see you further on up the road. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.